morning, everybody. So I'm not the first one to have said, um, you know, when you come to a difficult name to pronounce in the Bible, you just be confident, say it fast, and move on. <laughs> so I've expanded that to chapters of the Bible. Uh, so we did Jan Daniel 7, so um, I gave it a good shot, and we're going to move on. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we're going to be in, in uh, Daniel chapter 8 today, and um, uh, we'll, uh, we'll get on into this. Uh, by way of um, by way of brief introduction, um, some of the commentators have made note that the the original written language for Daniel changes between chapter seven and chapter eight. Um, it's been noted that from eight to the end of the book is written in Hebrew, where whereas the preceding chapters were written in Aramaic, which was uh, the common language of of the realm, but uh, the, the um, assumption is that since these latter chapters were written in Hebrew that they have a special uh, importance to uh, the nation of Israel itself and I think that's probably uh, wise. Um, as we saw when we studied Isaiah, uh, books of prophecy very often have uh, uh, a time of fulfillment maybe in the, the near future so uh, there is meaning for the people that are actually hearing the the message. Uh, then there is meaning for for people more distant in the future, and then sometimes there's meaning for people even beyond that. Um, so we'll kind of encounter some of that uh, as we go through today. There are two big divisions in the chapter. Uh, Three, if you want to be picky, uh, we have a little introduction as to where uh, we're going to talk about a vision, another vision of Daniel. First few verses uh, talk about where the vision happened, which is kind of interesting. The second is the vision itself, and then in some ways similar to chapter 7, we have the interpretation of the vision, and then at the end of all, uh, Daniel gets freaked out by the whole thing, and um, that's the same as chapter 7 as well, uh, because it's a lot. So let's jump on in to verse 1 of chapter 8. Uh, we'll go through it, and, um, and then we'll go through it again. It says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. So if you flip briefly back to chapter 7, it says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream. So here we have the third year, so two years after the first one, uh, and again we have another vision, and he's referring back to the one that he got uh, two years before. So just uh, by way of um, uh, organizing your timeline there. Verse 2, And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the capital, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. And we're going to go further there in, in a minute. But uh, the point is that he finds himself in this place called Susa. Uh, this is 200 miles east of Babylon. And at the time, it wasn't really a capital. Remember, he's in Babylon. And we know that the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, which we'll hear again about today, 
is to come after that. Susa was one of the capitals in the Persian Empire. So he is already looking into the future, talking about Susa, the capital, which isn't even a capital yet. Uh, a century after Daniel writes this, there's a Persian king named Xerxes, and if you remember Xerxes, this is where the book of Esther takes place, right? So although it's not always in order, um, Esther is taking place here, and also um, this is where Nehemiah came from before he went uh, on his rebuilding project. So uh, this is geographically where we're talking. Verse 3. I raised my eyes, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. And I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. In chapter 7, we heard of a bear who was raised up on one side. So there's this, this um, picture of a single entity with one part of the entity being greater than the other. So here we have um, a ram with two horns, one higher than the other. We had the picture of the bear. We had the bear uh, but kind of raised up unequally on one side and most people take this to be the uh, a picture of the Medo-Persian Empire. Um, there was the, the Medes but then the Persians kind of assumed and, 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 and took over from that so that's the inequality uh, that's referred to here. Also and I found something interesting uh, apparently back in the day uh, of course astrology was was really big we talked about this in the first part of, of Daniel and apparently geographically uh, certain regions of the world were assigned um, uh, zodiac signs Aries which I'm not up on my astrology but Aries apparently is the uh, symbol for the ram and that was designated in this area of kind of Mesopotamia over where um, uh, Persia would would be uh, so that's kind of interesting and we're fixing to meet a goat which apparently the astrological sign is a Capricorn and that was assigned to uh, the area to the west uh, where uh, Asia Minor and on into Europe is so uh, let's go on to verse 5, we've already met one animal in this drama, which is to say one uh, empire. Verse 5, as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram with the two horns, which I'd seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and was trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. 
Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the winds of heaven. Again, reflecting back to chapter 7, we had a a more mythological uh, beast, uh, also a very rapidly moving beast. This was um, a leopard, very fast-moving leopard, and we said that this referred to Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, of course, representing the Grecian uh, Empire, uh, would have come from the West, just like Scripture says. We know that the campaign of Alexander the Great uh, to conquer, uh, you know, the probably the greatest extent of the world uh, at any point in history, uh, came from the West very rapidly, uh, just like it says, uh, without even touching the ground. Almost, you could picture this flying goat moving very rapidly across everything. You can get into some of the details. It says. Um, you know, they're on the banks of the canal, and uh, he ran at him, and so forth. Apparently, when Alexander the Great uh, came to conquer this particular area of Persia, uh, one of the critical battles was, guess what, on the banks of a river, uh, where it looked like uh, uh, the Persians had supposedly laid a trap, uh, thinking that as the army was crossing the river, they would be able to, to handle him, but uh, he broke through, and then after that, uh, was able to just move past the, the lines and, and continue to conquer the whole area extremely rapidly. So uh, again, uh, some of the very details of this vision uh, did come to pass. To pass rather. Verse 9, Out of one of them, that is, out of one of these great horns, came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. Now, Alexander the Great didn't live very long. He died at the age of 33. Uh, Some people say he was poisoned, but in any event, he died in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's palace, actually. And of course, he had taken over that whole territory. After that, the succession to the throne wasn't really clear. Uh, who was going to follow Alexander the Great. And it, after about a 20 years squabble, the territory was divided up between four generals. One of the generals, um, Seleucus, took over the, the majority of the territory. And uh, after further years have passed, and if you look up the, the kings of the... Seleucid Empire, Seleucid Empire, I guess it's called. Um, there's a dozen or more, but one of them became exceedingly powerful and was thought to be uh, exceedingly uh, wicked and exceedingly ambitious, and as it happens, um, moved toward the south, the east, and so forth, like it says. Uh, and this was Antiochus the Fourth. Antiochus the Fourth. Most all the commentators, where, whether you're um, liberal, conservative, whatever, uh, see uh, him in this in this story. So we'll go along. We're going to come back to him in a moment. Verse nine again. Out of one of them, that is, out of one, the four 
horns, the four generals that were part of the uh, Alexander the Great's um, spoils of war, so to speak. There was a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over it, over to it together with the regular burnt offerings because of the transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Is that clear to everyone? Uh, so this is th this goes from being okay. I got this to oh my gosh, I didn't get that. Um, so let's go back again. Verse ten: It grew great even to the host of heaven. Some of the hosts and some of the stars that threw down to the ground are trampled on them. Blah blah blah. Verse twelve: And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering. Because of the transgression, it will throw truth to the ground. It will act and prosper. So here's the background. Um, history says that as Antiochus IV was was in power, um, he was had moved to the west and to the south, which would be over toward the land of Israel and south, which, which would be Egypt. So he was down dabbling in Egypt, and he had left. Um, uh, there was a high priest that uh, had been ruling there in Jerusalem, and Antiochus IV had deposed this priest. Uh, while he was down in Egypt, um, the priest that had been deposed thought Antiochus IV had died and decided to retake the high priest role. It didn't go well. Antiochus IV heard about it, comes back to Jerusalem, and at that point seeks revenge and desecrates the temple. So this, where it says uh, some of the host and some of the stars that threw down to the ground and trampled on them, this is referring to the people that are there in Israel, specifically in Jerusalem. This regular burnt offering that was taken away from him, these are the sacrifices that had been allowed to go on that were taken away from God. And it says the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. That is, um, he, uh, as I said, desecrated the the. The temple. <laughs> we have uh, a very interesting message going on. Uh, maybe God wants me to take a break. Uh, in any event, um, he uh, set himself up as Israel's king, of course, and uh, he had a very Antiochus fourth. Uh, set himself up, Epiphanes, he was called Antiochus IV Epiphanes, which means uh, as if the gods had an epiphany, as if the gods, you know, as if he was God. 
Apparently, he was the first ruler to ever use symbols of deity on coinage. It was common to put your image on coinage of the day. He was the first one to kind of put these divine attributes on the coins. Uh, there was a play on his name, which I, you know, is obscure to me, but apparently um, the, the play on his name was called, not Epiphanes, but Epimenes, and that meant he was crazy. He was just, you know, he was a madman. Uh, commentator says, he compelled the nation to worship him, he pro prohibited Israel from following her religious practices, and he desecrated, desecrated rather, the temple. He wanted them to worship Zeus and so forth, and there were pagan sacrifices uh, in uh, the temple and so forth. So um, this was, uh, this is kind of who uh, the prophecy is discussing, uh, for the moment at least. So let's go to uh, verse 12 uh, again. And a host will be given over, it, over to it together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I, that's back to Daniel, heard a holy one speaking, and then another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? In other words, how long is this desecration of the temple going to last? Verse 14, and he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. All right, so that's the vision. All right, and we've, we've talked a little bit about trying to identify who the players were, uh, so forth, but, um, but we're fixing to go into the interpretation of the vision. Before I go to that, though, let's talk a little bit about these last couple verses that were read. It says a holy one speaking and another holy one. So people have said this was maybe one angel speaking to another. I, you know, obviously we can't really know that for sure. But it says we get a very specific answer. And it says 2,300 evenings and mornings. And then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So people have tried to figure out, well, what does this mean, this 2,300 date? Uh, how do we relate that? Because we're, we're really pretty sure that this is referring to Antiochus IV. Uh, how does that all play out? And uh, I'm going to have lots of information in the study notes that I post, but um, I'll just say that how people look at this kind of goes into a couple different angles. Some people try to say, well, you know, this is kind of seven years-ish, and we know seven years, we'll talk about that. Some people say, well, maybe they meant there was a morning and an evening sacrifice, and it refers to 2,300 evenings and mornings, so maybe it only means 1,100 and 100, what, 1,150 days. Some people say, no, that's not exactly right. Some people have said, the Seventh-day Adventists were on this train, well, one day is equal to one year, so 2,300 years, and they counted backwards, and this is how they came up with the notion that uh, the Lord was going to come back in 1884. And when that didn't pan out, uh, 
you know, there was some re- revision to the prophecy and so forth. In any event, that's when the Seventh-day Adventists kind of started off down their own road. Uh, I should say that my understanding is, is that over the last uh, few decades, um, the Seventh-day Adventist church is, has moved more toward orthodoxy um, and, and kind of started to correct some of those errors from back in the day. So uh, that's, uh, that's uh, certainly a move in the right direction. I know a lot of uh, churches have benefited from the Seventh-day Adventist church because when their church is not open on Saturday, they'll use their facilities. Uh, so that's, you know, that's a little side benefit there. In any event, um, Dr. Uh, Walvoord from um, Dow Theological, very conservative um, commentator, uh, says the following. He said, taking all of the evidence into consideration, which is, trust me, pages, the best conclusion is that the 2300 days of Daniel are fulfilled from the period of 171 BC and culminated in the death of Antiochus Epiphanes in 164 BC. The period when the sacrifices ceased was the latter part of this longer period. He said, although the evidence available today doesn't offer fulfillment to the precise day, the 2300 days, obviously a round number, is relatively accurate in defining the period when the Jewish religion began to erode under the persecution of Antiochus and the period as a whole concluded with his death. So again, for people that are way smarter than me about this, um, that's, in, in his opinion, was the gist of the people that, that I discussed. So here we have prophecy from Daniel's perspective that from our perspective has already taken place in history. You with me? All right, verse 15. The interpretation of the vision. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. So let's work backwards. This phrase, son of man, is uh, familiar to our ear, and we usually think of that referring uh, to Jesus, Mm -hmm. and so often it does. In this particular case, uh, it's referring to Daniel. We have Gabriel, who uh, has been called upon, presumably by God, God is the one that commands the angels, of course. So make this man understand the vision, which Gabriel might have said, okay, Lord. Um, In any event, uh, this is the first time we hear uh, Gabriel mentioned. It's the first time we hear any angel mentioned. Of course, Gabriel is the one who was a messenger to Zacharias about the birth of John the Baptist and to Mary about the birth of Jesus. and uh, we'll hear more down the, the road about Gabriel. He says, I fell on my face, and, but he, that is Gabriel, said, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. So this is an interesting phrase, and this is one of the things that has caused commentators to try to decide, okay, 
we feel that this 2300 days kind of wrapped up with Antiochus IV um, but then Gabriel comes in and says this is for the time of the end so should we be looking further down the road should we be looking at this with another lay of detail that that says okay maybe there's more information here for a future time and and so have that in mind as we go through verse 18 and when he had spoken to me I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground but he touched me and made me stand up now I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground I don't know if you if any of you have fainted I have fainted I've actually fainted twice um, both times I fell face up but I could you know it, I guess it's 50 50 I could have just as easily <laughs> fell face down I think Daniel I think Daniel just passed out in a faint I think is what he did just then uh, and I think I would have been right there with him uh, but he touched me and made me stand up and he said behold I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation for it refers to the appointed time of the end hmm so this again sounds like Gabriel's putting our lens a little bit further in the future because he's talking about at the end and we know we're not at the end yet one more time verse 19 he says behold I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation for it refers to the appointed time of the end so what is this indignation referring to it's referring back to the desecration of the altar and the pagan worship and in effect when when God wasn't being worshipped at Israel in that day but it must mean something beyond that okay verse 20 as for the ram that you saw with the two horns in case there was a, you know if we, if we weren't sure as for the ram that you saw with the two horns these are the kings of Media and Persia and the goat is the king of Greece and the great horn between his eyes is the first king Alexander the Great we've talked about as for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose four kingdoms shall arise from his nation but not with his power exactly like history tells us four kingdoms of Alexander the Great you can look those up the big one was the Seleucian or the Seleucid Empire Verse 23, and at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall rise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but, my no, but by no human hand. The, visions of the, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. 
And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So, the interpretation we get, verse 23, And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall rise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Egotistical, that is. Without warning he shall destroy many. He shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken but by no human hand. The prince of princes we take to refer to Jesus, right? Did Antiochus IV go up against Jesus? Not per se. So, who are we talking about now? So, again, the commentators fall out. There are some people who say this is just more detail about Antiochus IV. And, to an extent, that's true. But, taken together with these phrases um, he shall rise up against the prince of princes this uh, interpretation by Gabriel that we're talking about things at the very end seems to say that Antiochus was a type we've talked about types before a, a model a foreshadowing if you will of the Antichrist, who will come at the end, who will go up against the Prince of Princes, who will be broken but by no human hand. Remember, we've talked about all of these kingdoms. And each kingdom has been brought down by another kingdom. But there's going to be a day when the final kingdom is brought down, but not by another human kingdom. So this is one of those situations where we can see the, the fulfillment of prophecy a few hundred years or partially a hundred years or so after Daniel saw it. Additional fulfillment about 400 years later, right? In the 160 BC range. This is the, the time frame between the Testaments, between Malachi and the New Testament. That's when all this was, the fulfillment was happening in Antiochus IV. And then we have this future day where we can look back at the information in Daniel 8 and learn a little bit about what the Antichrist is going to be up to. This desolation of the, of the altar and uh, this uh, great power, this fearful destruction, this cunning, um, this his own mind becoming great, amazing arrogance and egotistical. It says, without warning, he will destroy many and so forth. So this is a, a prophecy and then another prophecy. Uh, to kind of help tie some of these connections together in, in your head, um, you know about the 
when we're in the season of Advent around Christmas, our Jewish friends are celebrating Hanukkah, right? Hanukkah is also called, do you know what that's also called? I think it's called like the Feast of Lights or something like that. This is celebrating a time during this intertestamental testament period when a miracle came when the lights didn't go out but this was during the time of what's called the Maccabean revolt Maccabees was one of the army leaders that was trying to take back the throne from Antiochus and his realm okay so a lot of what we know about Antiochus the fourth and his persecution uh, we know from the 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 historical books, uh, Maccabees. Uh, some of these are included in the Roman Catholic canon. I think they're not scripture, but they're useful history. All right, let me pause there. Any questions that Dad can answer? <laughs> All right. I've used this analogy before, but just like when you're reading a book and you're getting to know the characters and then all of a sudden the scene shifts and you learn about a different set of characters and the scene shifts and you learn about another set of characters but as you go through the book those characters start to weave toward a common point that's kind of the the way that you should look at this take this information hold it there we're going to add to it some of these characters will reappear as you've already seen this is about our what third big chapter where we focused on these empires um, I think it should be clear uh, that through history um, you know the flow of history goes through these big empires um, the uh, states nations um, they, they matter right um, they bring liberation sometimes they bring slavery sometimes uh, they do matter, and uh, they show up in Scripture. So, last call for questions. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's pause. And, uh, again, um, if you're interested, uh, look through the, uh, the notes on the podcast. Or I think this time it's going to be about 11 pages worth of uh, excerpts from the commentaries that I looked at. And um, if you reach different conclusions, that's okay, too. Uh, you can... Uh, you'd be in good company. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. Um, because ultimately what your scripture tells us is that you're in charge of all of this and that none of this is taking you by surprise. You are the God that is beyond history. We thank you that we can put our faith in you. We thank you that we can put our faith in Jesus through whom we connect to you. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that can prompt us to be um, the people you really want us to be for, for this world, that this age that we're in. And we pray that you'd continue to lead us and guide us as we try to bring your kingdom to the earth that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody.